0: Word I'm going to say the word. In the beginning was the word. What? Word. 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 Was the word.
1: From the studios of KJZZ in Phoenix, Arizona, welcome to Word, a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. Here's your host, Tom Maxidon.
0: Coming up on Word, a transgender former firefighter from Arizona talks to us about her new memoir, And Transitioning.
2: It was easier for them to deal with a competent, strong, capable female fire chief than they were with a male firefighter who was not seen as being
0: masculine enough. Plus, November means NaNoWriMo, National Novel Writing Month for aspiring fiction writers. We'll talk to a Valley resident who's helping others while working on her own effort to close out 50,000 words in a month.
1: Somebody at work just offhandedly mentioned National Novel Writing Month, but they didn't mention actually that it was this whole big thing. They just said, yeah, there's this thing where people try to write a novel in November.
0: But first, indigenous author Rebecca Roanhorse is back with us after a previous appearance in October of 2020. She has a new novella out soon entitled Tread of Angels. Roanhorse will be at Poison Pen later this month as well. She currently lives in New Mexico but didn't grow up there. We caught up with her on the road.
3: My family has deep roots here. They've been in New Mexico for generations. And I actually grew up in Texas, away from my family.
0: Is that one of the reasons why you're in Austin, to uh, maybe relive a little bit of your childhood? (laughs)
3: No, I'm just here for the Texas Book Festival. Uh, But it is kind of nice to be back because the food here is my comfort food. I love Tex-Mex and, (laughs) you know, just driving in from the airport, just the landscape is so different from New Mexico. And I'm like, Oh, yeah, this looks like my childhood.
0: Well, we appreciate you talking to us on the road. And one question I had as an indigenous writer, I'm curious if your writing is maybe inspired by any storytellers in your immediate family or friends.
3: Oh, gosh. Um, Well, no. (laughs) I am sure there are storytellers in my lineage, but I didn't grow up with my family, I'm adopted. So I was given up at birth and only reunited with my family as an adult much later. I really don't know. Uh, I think it's probably in my genes somewhere. And my adoptive mother was an English teacher, so we'll throw her a little credit, definitely, for getting me interested in books and storytelling.
0: Your new novella, Tread of Angels, is out soon. And in fact, you'll be celebrating its release in person at Poison Pen in Scottsdale on November 18th. The book is billed as a dark fantasy narrative of angels and demons set in the Old West. What time period are we talking about here and what influenced you to look back in time for your setting?
3: It's definitely a fantasy. It's not historically accurate. (laughs) I could definitely say that, Uh, but, you know, probably around 1883, I think was my inspiration. And, you know, the idea really came to me on a trip through Colorado. Uh, I would say this is set in sort of a fictional Colorado if I had to set it anywhere. And we went through Leadville, which is the highest city in the uh, lower 48. And it's just beautiful, really striking. It's an old mining town. It boomed in the 1880s from silver mining. You know, as we were driving through, I was really thinking if angels were to fall, you know, anywhere in the United States, where would they fall to earth? And I thought, well, they would fall here in Leadville. And so, so that's really sort of what got my mind going.
0: The plot centers on two characters, Celeste and Mariel. And I wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about them and sort of set up how they're integral to this story.
3: So Celeste and Mariel are sisters, but they were sisters that were raised apart for most of their lives. And the society that they belong to, uh, the society in the story, is a very segregated society, divided by class, divided by those who consider themselves descendants of angels, and those who consider themselves descendants of fallen angels, the ones who rebelled against God and in the war of heaven, let's say. And Mario uh, very much looks like a descendant of a fallen angel, and Celeste can pass into elect or angel society. And, and so their experiences of growing up have been very different. So now uh, in the story, Mariel has been accused of murder and it's up to Celeste to try to prove her innocence. And she sort of has to navigate the sort of Byzantine legal system and uh, all the politics and, and all the sort of relationships and everything that the higher caste society controls and grapple with her own identity along the way.
0: Sounds fascinating. We certainly don't want to spoil the ending. One thing that I'm also interested in was, uh, I don't know if you would call it a dedication, but in the opening pages, it says, for those in need of a little redemption. (laughs) I'm wondering what you meant by that, and maybe were you searching for some redemption in writing this story yourself? Mm,
3: Probably not. I mean, I'm sure we're all in need of some redemption, (laughs) so... um, but I think for me, the story, I don't like you said, I don't want to spoil it. But Celeste is a woman who is very single minded. And for me, the story is a lot about wanting something too much, or, you know, sort of um when to learn to let go, or when to learn, you know, the truths about people that you don't want to admit. Uh, and so I think it's really Celeste and women like her, or people like her who are in need of a little redemption, and that's who the book is for. Uh, Not so much for me, although
0: I'm sure it would apply in some ways. We call them friends when they come back to the show. Rebecca Roanhorse is author of many titles. She was with us back in October of 2020, and she joined us again to talk about her latest Tread of Angels. It's out soon, and you can catch Rebecca at Poison Pen in Scottsdale on November 18th. Rebecca, thank you so much again for coming back to Word.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: You can find out a bit more about Rebecca Roanhorse on our website, word.kjzz.org. Coming up, a transgender former firefighter from Arizona talks to us about her new memoir and transitioning. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word, a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. Did you know that KJZZ's Spot 127 Youth Media Center is a qualifying charitable tax organization? Your Arizona State Tax Credit could support high school students in learning digital media and journalism skills. More information at taxcredit.spot127.org. You're a texting, emailing, tweeting extraordinaire. You and your cell phone are inseparable. It's the first thing you grab in the morning and the last thing you see before bed. Tap your screen and download the KJZZ mobile app. You can listen live and multitask. Tap the KJZZ app and stay connected. It's at your app store.
1: Weekends on KJZZ will make you stop and think. So my question is, why don't we ask for the things that we need?
0: From out of nowhere, I felt a tug on my elbow. I spun around. There's an automatic machine gun sticking in my gut.
1: At same cafe, it didn't
3: matter if you had money to pay for your meal.
1: Whether it's a peek into TED Talks or stories of our lives on the Moth Radio Hour, KJZZ Weekends bring you thought-provoking and inspiring programs. Listen to KJZZ this weekend.
0: Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. Both Sides of the Fire Line is a new book from former Arizona Wildland and structural firefighter Bobby Scopa. It's a memoir about her near five decades serving in those capacities and also her gender transition. Scopa currently splits her time living in the Valley and Oregon. Of course, it's not uncommon for firefighters to enter the trade because of a family member who also serves in the same capacity. I firstly wanted to know if that was true in Scopa's case.
2: No, I didn't have family who were firefighters before. How I got started into it was that Because I started working as a wildland firefighter, that was an offshoot of my love of the outdoors. And I was a backpacker and avid hiker back in those days. And so that kind of got me interested in fighting specifically wildland firefighters. Once you get a little taste of it, it's kind of addicting because uh, it's
0: exciting. You would equate it to kind of like a rush? Absolutely.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. One of the stories in the book I talk about is my very first wildland fire, and it was so exciting. I was 19. I didn't know anything. I hadn't had any training. I was just told to shut up and dig with my shovel, and there were air tankers going over, the big bombers, you know, dropping retardant. helicopters. I just could barely work. It was so exciting. I just wanted to keep looking and watching. And I kept getting yelled at to shut up and dig and, you know, put your head down.
0: (laughs) So that's how I started. Do your job, right? Kind of a thing. Yeah. That's got to be a quality of someone because obviously bravery is, you know, something you've got to possess and you can't be afraid of fire, I wouldn't think, but maybe a healthy respect for it though, however. Yeah. Respect for it. I mean, this issue of bravery and heroes
2: and all that sort of thing, I'd like to disavow that side of of that sort of thinking because people are professionals. You know, we, wildland firefighters might not get paid like structural firefighters, but there's professionalism involved and you don't want someone who's all hopped up on adrenaline. You want someone who's calm and secure and knowledgeable and professional. That's who you want. And um, I like that image way better than I do of, you know, the brave hero.
0: Great points. And what are some of the more memorable fires that you helped fight that our audience in this region might remember?
2: Probably the number one fire for me in my career that was a significant emotional event was the Dude Fire back in 1990. And that folks remember that. That was uh, up north of Payson near Control Road. We lost 50 some houses. And the worst part was we lost six firefighters. And so, of course, that one will always stand out in my mind. That was a horrible fire, but I've been on many, many large fires and and other incidents that weren't fires. I've responded to hurricanes. Those are always very interesting and challenging from a responder's perspective. I was in uh, New York City following 9-11. We were there. Our team was there for almost a month. That obviously will always uh, stick with me, uh, the imagery It got to the point for me that wildfires became kind of routine and it was really those unusual wildfires that were unusually large or impacting huge numbers of homes. Those are the ones that you stick with because you put yourself in the place of all those homeowners and it makes you feel terrible that you couldn't do more to save the homes.
0: Yeah. And you bring up a great point too. I think sometimes people do forget that just because you may live in one locality, if you're a firefighter, you often get called to other states because you have a broad array of training in your bag, as it were. Bobby, the full title of your book is Both Sides of the Fireline, A Memoir of a Transgender Firefighter. If you don't mind, I'd like to ask you to talk about when you transitioned and how it affected your career.
2: Well, it's a unique story, I guess. Um, uh, You know, I was working for the city fire department and I was uh, struggling. I'd been struggling for years, kind of holding my psyche together because I was struggling trying to maintain this male facade. And so I was married at the time and my now ex had a job opportunity and uh, I had been with the fire department for 12 years. I had been a wildland firefighter before that. And so I was good. Let's you know take the job and I'll start doing something else because I'm struggling here. So I was able to get my master's degree when we moved. Uh, the marriage fell apart. And so then I had to find work again. And I kind of thought at that point, the easiest place to get work would be the force service. So I had transitioned and then went back to work. Again, as a firefighter, but now female. And my career was so much better. You know, it sounds counterintuitive, but I did so much better as a female firefighter and then fire chief than I had done as a male. And uh, there's probably lots of reasons for that. Psychologists would probably enjoy talking about it. But the bottom line was I was more relaxed and I did very well professionally after I transitioned.
0: And did you feel like you had more respect from your firefighting colleagues after transitioning?
2: That's very interesting, Tom, because I would say I I probably did, because as I talk about in the book, I think my fellow firefighters were way more easily, it was easier for them to deal with a competent, strong, capable female fire chief than they were with a male firefighter who was not seen as being masculine enough. After I transitioned, some people knew my past, some people didn't, and uh, it never came up after that.
0: I know that this memoir was emotionally difficult to write based upon a short conversation that we had prior to this longer discussion. Why did you want to confront the feelings that you had during your career, and what do you hope those who read the book take away from it?
2: The intent was very clear in my mind. First off, I wasn't too sure exactly how difficult it was going to be to write the book, uh, which it turned out, you know, emotionally taxing. But the point of going through all that was I didn't want other transgender people to go through what I went through with family, for example. I wanted, you know, someone who's maybe my age now, 60s, that has a grandchild who comes out as transgender And parents and the moms and dads, I want them to be able to read a book like this. And you don't have to have, you know, someone in your family who's trans to benefit from the book. I've had comments from people about how they were rejected by family for something entirely unrelated to the LGBT spectrum. They were rejected by family for other reasons. And they told me how much solace they took in reading the book. So the point is to do some good out there. And this is such a time that maybe some sensible discussion take place on this subject. I think if people hear and read my story, their eyes will open up a little bit, hopefully, and be a little bit more aware of what we go through if we're transgender.
0: Both sides of the fire line, Memoir of a Transgender Firefighter, is the title of the book by Bobby Scopa, Bobby, I want to thank you so much for coming to Word and sharing a bit of your story with us.
2: Thanks very much, Tom. I'm so excited to
0: be a part of this. You can find out a bit more about Bobby Scopa and her memoir on our website, word.kjzz.org. Coming up, November means NaNoWriMo for many, National Novel Writing Month. We'll talk to a Valley resident who's helping others while working on her own effort to close out 50,000 words in a month. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word. It's a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. Football season is here, and that means tailgating time. If your tailgate doesn't function like it used to, consider donating that SUV or pickup to the KJZZ vehicle donation program and support the programs you love. Find out more at cars.kjzz.org. Did you know two out of every three NPR listeners prefer to purchase products and services from public radio sponsors? You can see the benefits of becoming a KJZZ corporate sponsor at sponsor.kjzz.org.
1: KJZZ is your source for
2: news and analysis. We would all love to have everything mitigated by the next monsoon season. That is not possible.
0: The program has been helping Phoenix residents with housing and utility costs. While the passing of the Inflation Reduction Act was helpful, more work needs to be done to meet climate objectives.
1: KJZZ is the Valley's news leader. Listen to KJZZ
0: on air, online, and on your phone. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. Writers all over the world are feverishly trying to hit their daily goals as they jam out 50,000 words, hopefully by November 30th, in the annual NaNoWriMo contest for National Novel Writing Month. That's the same for Valley resident Ali Yon, who's participated in the contest for many years and took some aspiring novelists under her wing to plan their efforts last month during what's referred to as Plottober. Like so many of us, Yon is a transplant to the state.
1: I am originally from Kansas, and I moved out to the valley in 2004, and I've lived here most of the time since then, uh, except for a brief period of a couple of years where we lived in San Diego.
0: You are part of an interesting cadre of folks, and a lot of people have heard about NaNoWriMo, National Novel Writing Month. Unfortunately, last year we didn't get to pay our annual homage because I had surgery and was out for quite a bit of the month. But there are a lot of active participants. And when did you first encounter Nano? And did you always want to be a writer?
1: I'll answer the writer question first. So I always wanted to write. It's something I've wanted to do since about the third grade. But I grew up very poor. Like, I can't even stress that enough, and we moved between schools often, and there's something that happens when you grow up that way where you don't think that you can have these big dreams, if that makes sense. So when I was graduating high school, I thought, well, what kind of writing can I do where I could make a living? And I went, journalism, that sounds fabulous. It doesn't you know, match my personality at all, but it sounded great. I got my associates in it when I lived in Kansas, and then I actually got into the Cronkite School here in Arizona, which is a little more difficult to get into and um I failed out fabulously the first semester I just I realized it was not where my passion was and I kind of took a break from writing for a while and it was in 2014 I believe somebody at work just offhandedly mentioned National Novel Writing Month but they didn't mention actually that it was this whole big thing they just said yeah there's this thing where People tried to write a novel in November. They didn't tell me there were groups involved, nothing like that. And so I tried on my own, just by myself, to write a novel in the month of November. It did not go well. I did not finish it. And then the next year, I actually heard of the actual organization, and I joined. And I've been doing it, save for 2020. uh, That year, I didn't do it, but every other year since, I've done it. And I love it.
0: That's kind of a way that a lot of people describe it. And we just came off of October, which is affectionately referred to as Plottober, in which groups of people gather to kind of figure out, all right, what's the direction going? And they, they lean on folks who are what I might call elders. and tried and shape the plots, the characters, the themes, what have you, for their novel. And you meet with folks here in the Valley as well. How many events did you have in the month of October?
1: We had one every week. So there were four different plotting events that we held. And then we had a couple of kickoff events. So we had a kickoff event where you kind of meet and get to know each other. And then we had a virtual one as well, because not everyone can meet in person. I certainly, this year, I'm still doing virtual events so six different events in October to get you prepared for Nano and then also to get it to where you get to meet other people
0: and make this community. What's your current project?
1: I am working on a project called Down at the Lake, and it's a mystery because I am a member of Sisters in Crime, and it's about a woman who at 18, she's at work, she's washing dishes and all her friends are out at the lake, and she gets a phone call from one of her friends saying that the boat that the guys were on in the water capsized and this woman's boyfriend's missing and they never find him. And she just kind of goes on with her life. She ends up joining the sheriff's department. And 15 years later, the lake starts to dry out as you know, so many have recently and they find a body with the bullet hole between its eyes. And so now she's trying to figure out which one of her friends is a murderer and which one of them is an accomplice.
0: Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, speaking of hearing these stories, I'm sure you're aware of the news about what's been going on in Lake Mead as it, mm-hmm. you know, recedes and bones being found. Are you what they would call a let me see if I get my terminology correct here, a planner, a pantser, or somewhere in between?
1: I think I would go definitely with plantser. The first few years that I did Nano, I tried to fly by the seat of my pants like a complete pantser and it didn't go so well. Like I won Nano every time that I've done it, but it would get to the point where at the end of the month, the last few days, I would need to write 10,000 plus words every single day. Oh, wow. uh, I do not recommend that. It's painful <laughs> <laughs> and it makes you hate yourself. Um, you look back at the you that was there at the beginning of the month and you just shake your head and go, what was I thinking? Every year. But I am not built to fully outline. I found out last year when I do that, I just get bored with the story and then it goes off the rails because I just start making stuff up because I'm like, I hate what I wrote on the outline. I'm just going to fly by this in my pants. So this year I've gone kind of in the middle. I have an outline that's fairly defined as to what happens in each chapter, but not to the level of detail that I did last year. So it's kind of in between. It gives me a little bit of flexibility. So I'm excited to do it this year and see kind of where it takes me.
0: 50,000 words in a month. That is the goal for NaNoWriMo National Novel Writing Month. We've been speaking to Ali Yawn, who's led a group here in the Phoenix metro region and kind of getting them caught up to speed about what's ahead for the rest of this month. Allie, I want to thank you so much for coming to Word and talking to us about NaNo.
1: Of course. Thank you so much for having me.
0: You can find out a bit more about Ali Yon on our website, word.kjzz.org. Thanks to everyone who became a member of KJZZ last month during our recent new member drive. If you didn't get a chance to make your gift of support, that's okay. Please consider a monthly sustaining pledge of 10 20 maybe even $30 a month by giving online. Whatever is in your budget is the right amount. I'm Tom Maxidon. And thanks so much for supporting public radio and literature from and about Arizona and the region.
3: Word. 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 Was the word.
1: Thanks for listening to Word, a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. You can find all episodes online at word.kjzz.org or wherever you get your podcasts.